Well, maybe we should just pray and dismiss. I think that song pretty much said it all. Great job. Great job. Uh, we will be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there with me or on your devices, uh, please do so now. And as we will begin, um, we first need to pray, so pray with me. God, we thank you for just the privilege that we have together together here this morning. Together together here and to sing songs of exaltation and praise to you is a beautiful privilege. And also that you have given us your word that we have in our hands, in our hearts, in our minds. Uh, that, Lord, reveal to us your beauty and the beauty of Christ. And our beauty that we have in our relationship with him and through him. So we pray as we look at your word this morning, we would see the stunning beauty of the nature of our relationship with Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, we will begin in verse 1. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our passage begins this morning with an if-then statement, and it serves two primary purposes. It is connecting believers back to the realities that have been attributed to them in the first two chapters of our letter. And then secondly, it calls others to examine their lives to determine if this reality has become their reality. The reality that we are being connected back to is a believer's union with Christ. And we see the past, present, and future realities of this union in the first four verses of our passage this morning. In verse uh, one, we see that we have been raised with Christ. In verse three, we see that our lives are hidden with Christ. And in verse four, we read that we will appear with him in glory. Past, present, and future realities for those of us who are united with Christ. And this is not the first time that our union with Christ has shown up in our letter to the Colossians. You see, the letter is saturated with it. I did a quick survey of where we have been so far in our letter and look at the number of phrases that declare this great truth concerning a believer's union with Christ. Phrases like, Christ in you, in Christ, in him, with him, with Christ, in whom, through him, multitude of times, all over this letter. These wonderful phrases seep into every nook and cranny of this beautiful little letter to the church in Colossae. So what do these, free, uh, these phrases mean for us, for you and I? What does Paul and God want us to understand as they bombard us with all of these Christ bombs, if you will? Well, one thing is for sure they want us to get that our only hope is Jesus Christ. Yours and my only hope for salvation is found 
in Jesus. And it is this union that Christ, uh, union with Christ, that Paul will be drawing on from our passage this morning when he will call us to live differently. All that he is going to call us to do as followers of Jesus must be rooted in our union with him. As Jesus would put it in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing good. And so to help us see the stunning reality of the implications of our union with Christ, I'm going to use a visual, uh, borrow a visual from David Platt. And I I bought some plastic containers to help visualize for us this morning how important our union with Christ is. So if you will, imagine that this container represents you. Are you ready for the great art that's coming your way? There you are. All right. So just imagine that this container represents you. According to Colossians 1.27 and numerous verses in the New Testament, we know that Christ is in you. So we need a Christ container that goes in you. So this is Christ in you. Now if that were not enough, numerous other passages in Colossians on the screen behind me and throughout the New Testament says that not only is Christ in us, but we are in Christ. So we need another container. And so Christ who is in us, goes in this container. Now, if this were not enough, in our passage this morning, Colossians 3, verse 3, says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so we need another container that represents God, the Father. So we are in God, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. So I want you to think about this visual just for a second. And think about all the implications it has for us as believers. Think about the adversary just for a moment. Who wants to come at you? Let's say he tries to come at you, he first encounters God the Father, whom he does not have a good track record with. And let's just say, hypothetically, that somehow he makes it past God the Father. Who does he encounter? None other than Jesus Christ himself, whom the last encounter that they had was left shamed and defeated by Christ. His head was crushed by the snake crusher where death and sin and Satan were defeated. And then let's just say, hypothetically speaking, he makes it past Christ round one and he comes at you and he encounters you. Who does he encounter? That's right. Jesus Christ round two living inside of you. So I am thinking at this point, 
that you are pretty safe. You are pretty secure. That victory over sin and its temptations is yours. No matter what suffering you face, no matter what trials and tribulations you face, no matter the temptations of the world and your flesh and the adversary, victory is yours. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, when he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So no matter what life throws at you, no matter the temptations you face, I want you to recall this simple visual and be reminded that you are in Christ, that Christ is in you and that you are in God and that you are absolutely secure and you have everything that you need for victory as a result. Now Paul is going to draw on this reality in our passage this morning You see, since we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ because of our union with him, we are to seek and set our minds on heaven above. Seek and set. And this call to seek and set our minds on the things that are above is because our union with Christ has transferred us from one kingdom to another, from the kingdom and domain of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. Therefore, we are no longer citizens of this world. No, we are now citizens of heaven. How many of you are familiar with something called dual citizenship or dual nationality? It simply means that a person is a citizen of two countries simultaneously and share the rights and responsibilities of the citizens in each country. Now, you can imagine that Problems naturally arise when an individual is attempting to maintain the competing values of two different countries. Listen to what I found at the U.S. Department of State's website regarding this. They write, it is important to note the problems attendant to dual nationality. Claims of other countries upon U.S. dual nationals often place them in situations where their obligations to one country are in conflict with the laws of the other. In addition, their dual nationality hampers efforts of the U.S. government to provide protection to them when they're living abroad, especially when they are in the country of their second nationality. Now, for this reason, many countries will not even allow for dual citizenship. Well, our passage this morning is reminding us that the kingdom of the Lord is a kingdom that does not allow for dual citizenship. There are competing values that cannot nor should not be maintained. Through our single citizenship, God can protect us while we are living abroad. And we will see the reality of our new singular citizenship We see it even in the beginning of our letter in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, when we hear, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son.
through our union with Christ, our citizenship has been transferred and all allegiances that go with it. Not only that, but the particular aspect of our union with Christ that is being emphasized in the first four verses of our passage this morning is our union with his death, burial, and resurrection by which this transferal takes place. Back in chapter two, we read, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We see the same language in the first four verses of our passage this morning, that of death and resurrection. So it is our union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by which we are transferred And that transferal means that we are no longer under our former kingdom's ways and dominion because we have died to them. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul would put it this way. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? So we have died to the old ways we have died to the things of the world that is why Paul expects those who were with Christ to no longer seek and set their minds on the things of this world because they've died to it and while we remember our death to the world through our union with Christ's death we also remember our resurrection with him through our union with Christ's resurrection. And therefore, our new citizenship in his kingdom, our new kingdom. Listen to how Paul describes our freedom from the slavery of this world in Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in our new life, we seek and set our eyes and our minds on the new kingdom. We become uplookers, if you will, looking above to the things of heaven instead of downlookers who are focused on earth. And now before we are too quick to seek and set our minds on the streets of gold and the mansions, the stuff of heaven, if you will, We must remember that it is the king that makes the kingdom so beautiful, so attractive. We are to seek the things that are above because that is where Christ is. We are to set our minds on the things above because our lives are hidden with Christ. And verse 4 reveals to us that Christ is not only our way to life, but rather Christ is is our life. I got to preach a sermon about six years ago that was significantly influenced 
by a sermon from a 19th century Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers. You may have heard of him. His sermon, titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, is based on the premise that a person could not rid themselves of sins, what he called old affections, unless they are supplanted with a new desire, what he called a new affection. And even today, it remains one of the most important works on how Christians overcome sin in their lives. And I think what we are reading today is Paul's sermon, which could be titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Union. The Expulsive Power of a New Union. And it is this new union with Christ that frees us up to pursue the expulsive power of a new affection. And that new affection, that supreme affection, is Christ himself. This is why our passage calls us to seek and set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's calling us to stoke our affections for him. When we look and behold the beauty of Jesus, we fall more and more in love with him. He becomes the treasure hidden in a field that we joyfully release everything else for. And as he becomes our ultimate treasure, our supreme affection, all other sinful affections are supplanted. And the fires of these affections are stoked even more as we read things like our lives being hidden with Christ. That you and I who were once alienated from Jesus and hostile towards him have been so reconciled to him that it can only be described as us being hidden with him. That Christ has so entangled his life with ours in the most extreme and magnificent of ways that it is described here as your life being hidden with Christ in God. How glorious is that? And not only that, but the now hiddenness of that reality will one day be revealed fully at his return. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him as well in glory. Oh God, thank you. Thank you, Christ. Thank you for uniting us with your death and your resurrection. Thank you for hiding our lives with yours. And thank you for the promised future hope of appearing with you in glory. So church, what patterns and rhythms in your life help you become uplookers instead of downlookers? What things help you focus on heaven and Christ instead of the world and self? How do you seek and set your mind on him? Is Christ your life? Is he everything to you? Is your life hidden with him? What helps you live this day in light of that day when you will appear with your Savior in glory? If you don't currently have any rhythms in place, I'll just give you a few to consider. Consider reading one of the Gospels where you get to see the beauty and the magnificent of Jesus. Uh, maybe read a gospel-centered book like the Gospel Primer where you get to be reminded of the gospel over and over again. Get involved in a small group if you're not already connected to one who will 
every time you meet remind you of your union with Christ. Consider getting involved in one of our ladies' in-depth Bible studies on the book of Colossians where you will get to see your union as they dig in to the letter together. Or go to one of our adult discipleship classes where Christ is the center. These are just some ideas. There are many more. But whatever you do, be sure to set your gaze upon Christ and the beauty of your union with him. Now we're about to look at verses 5 through 11 which will call each and every believer to put to death and to put off and to put off sin. But we must ingrain in our hearts and minds that we can only do this in and through our union with Christ. We can only love because he first loved us. And apart from Jesus, as we've already said, we can do nothing good. So our transformation is utterly dependent upon our union with him and our union with him is what frees us to seek him, to set our minds on him, and to put to death the sins that are in our lives. And so with this at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, we are now ready to look at the following verses, picking up in verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Here we are commanded to put to death or to mortify, to use the language of the King James, that which is earthly in us, those things that are associated with our former life and our former kingdom. And just by way of reminder, we are to put them to death because verse 3 says we have died. We might say it this way, let that which is declared to be dead by God actually be dead. This is what some call the already not yet of scripture. Because in a very real sense, we are dead to the old self and simultaneously in the process of putting the old self to death. So we are called to participate in the work of transformation by putting to death the earthly things that attempt to cling to us as we have crawled out of the grave. Puritan John Owen wrote a wonderful little book called Mortification of Sin, where he famously quoted, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. His fuller quote goes like this, it's on the screen behind me. Do you mortify, do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Then he goes on to say, it is our duty to mortify, to be killing the sin while it is in us. We must be at this work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy has only done half the work if he quits before the enemy is dead. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But sin is always active when it seems most quiet and its waters are often deep when they are calm have you ever started addressing a sin like really really going after it i am going to put this thing called lust to death for example i'm going to really focus on killing it this time and man you start memorizing scripture that addresses it 
Uh, You put up protective barriers and fences in place. You get an accountability partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let's say you start this work today. And by November, you realize that lust is not just a biggest struggle for you as it was. And so you take your foot off the gas. You go back to your minimal quiet times. Uh, you, you start uh, meeting with your accountability partner less. Uh, maybe they're hijacked uh, with conversations about the latest football games. Uh, you remove those kind of barriers and filters because let's be honest, they're an inconvenience to us. And then April and May roll around. And you notice that the lust in your heart is back full force. What you thought was victory was just the seasons changing. You realize that in November, the weather changed, and there's not as much for your sinful eyes to take in, to distort, and to fuel your sinful heart. But now that spring and summer are here, your fleshly, sinful heart and mind is revived. You see, this is because you stopped bothering your sin because it stopped bothering you. You had not killed it, you had just injured it. It just, and then it went and it laid dormant. Let me give an illustration that I think will be helpful here. When I was growing up, I had two brothers and uh, my dad, being a little bit of a redneck, liked to give us creative pets. I'd probably call these more like critters than pets. So one of the first ones he got me and my two brothers was a tortoise that he had drilled a little hole in its shell and kind of chained it uh, in the yard. And he gave us some paints to color the shell. I forgot what we called it, probably something like Shelly. That was pet number one. Pet number two was we found that there were some flying squirrels in a tree in our woods and so We collected those and uh, tried to make those pets, but we also had cats, so that did not work out so well for the squirrels. But the most interesting critter that my dad gave me and my two brothers as a pet was a possum. (laughs) Not the best of pets for young children. First time he showed it to me, it was really upset and it hissed and showed all of its teeth. Not only that, it was actually a mother and all these other heads started popping up on its back. That really freaked me out. (laughs) But the most interesting thing about possums is this thing that they do called playing possum. They play dead. And it's actually not an act for them. It's actually the way that God designed them. They have what's called a delicate autonomic nervous system that when there's a threat of danger coming at them because they don't have a lot of offensive weapons, they kind of go into a catatonic state. They kind of go to sleep. And animals normally don't like to eat things that are already dead. They only like to eat things that they kill. So they're kind of taken back by this. They go and sniff and they'll get away and they'll leave because they think the possum is dead. And so what does a possum do? He waits a while. He lays there. And then when he thinks the threat is gone, he kind of starts looking around. And then he'll move his head slowly. And then when he knows that the predator is gone, he gets up, scurries around, and starts wreaking the same havoc that he was doing before. Church, I think in our battle against sin, I am convinced that our sin plays possum with us. We start to attack a particular sin. We mortify 
and start that process and our sin plays dead. To guard and protect itself, it goes dormant and it lays there until we stop attacking it. It has not been killed, it's just playing dead and it just lays there until we take our focus off of it. And when we walk away, it raises its head and noticing that the danger and threat is gone, it gets up to start wreaking havoc all over again. You see, church, the battle that we are commanded to engage in is nothing less than a battle to the death. Not to get too graphic here, but when we think the possum is dead, we continue to deal it death blows until we can ensure that it will never rear its ugly head again to wreak havoc on us and to interfere with our relationship with God. Now the list of sins given to us can be grouped together under the title sexual sins. Even covetousness or greed, depending on your translation, fits into this category due to its desire to have something or someone who is not theirs to have. We see this even in the Ten Commandment, the Tenth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And the greediness factor is apparent in the person's insatiable desire for more and greater sexual experiences. So such covetousness or greed makes us God. It is the worship of self. People, both in person and virtual, become objects for one's own personal self-gratification. And it demeans and degrades human beings who are created in the image of God and therefore is rightly described as nothing less than idolatry. And verse 6 reminds us that the severity of such sins is great. Such sins as sexual sins listed here result in the wrath of God coming. For a believer, for those of us who are united with Christ, that wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ on our behalf. This should again awaken a godly hatred in us towards the residual sin that we still have. But at the same time, it should lead us to praise and worship of the one who took our penalty. But for the unbeliever, for those who are not yet united with Christ, the reality of the coming wrath of God should cause you to humble yourself, to repent of your sin, and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and therefore become united with him. And for good measure, so that Christians do not begin to look down on sinners as though they are somehow better than them, verse seven reminds us that we too once walked in such sins. There is truly none righteous, no, not even one. And so let the one who boasts, boast in Christ. So church, brothers and sisters, we kill sin. We kill any and all sexual sin. To quote John Owen, we make it our daily work and we do not stop until it is dead. If it plays possum, we check its pulse and if there's a pulse remaining, we get back to the killing. So what about you? 
Do you have even a hint of sexual sin in your life? What do your eyes take in? What do you touch? What runs freely in your minds? Some of you may have made moves in the right direction, but did you stop short of killing the sexual sin? Maybe you don't look at porn anymore, but do you let the images run freely in your minds? Do you tap in to that mental database? Or maybe you just switched to a milder version and you went to Netflix that still contains significant sexual content in the shows that you choose to watch. Remember, nothing less than death is expected. Now before he's done, Paul has another list of sins that he wants us to look at. Look at verse eight. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In our previous uh, verses, we were provided a list of sexual sins. Here, we are given a list of social sins that we are to put off. Because all of the sins listed here affect personal relationships and they impact the unity within the church. Most of the sins listed here need no explanation, but there's one that I think it might be helpful to unpack just a bit, the one noted as obscene talk. If you're thinking that it refers to vulgar language, what we sometimes call cursing and such, you would be right, but it means even more than that. It's also referring to language that is abusive, language that hurts and tears down other people. That is why in the put off and put on section in Ephesians, Paul writes this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul is referring to any words we speak to or about that does not build others up or that is not gracious to them. So church, how is your speech? Have you put off any and all gossip? Is there anyone that you hold anger or bitterness against? Do you tear people down? Whether they are in your presence or whether they, when they are out of your presence. Remember that these are a part of our old lives. These are aspects of our previous kingdom. And since we have died to our old selves and to that kingdom through our union with Christ, we mortify these as well. And now before we think that these two lists are the only sins that God cares about us putting to death, we must consider this tiny three little word, all, in verse eight. You see, God wants us to put all sins away. These are two starter lists, if you will, that Paul is using to make this point. Now, once again, we see the already not yet reality of the Christian life. Even though we have put off the old self and have put on the new self, we are still in the process of being renewed. And this renewal is in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Now, many sermons that I have heard preached on this passage correlate the put off and put on language to the taking off of an old, dirty garment and the putting on of a new, white garment, something like a coat or a jacket. Now, while I think this is helpful, I think it misses the depth of the transformation that Paul is describing here because it's not some external thing that is being removed or replaced. Rather, it is the essence of the person that has changed. Notice that it is the old self in verse 9 that has been put off, and it is the new self that has been put on in verse 10. The essence or nature of the individual changes. There is complete transformation. There is a new creation. Listen to how Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So this is more than a mere wardrobe change. It is a metamorphosis, which passages like 2 Corinthians 3, 18 make clear when we read, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, where we get the word metamorphosis from, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The best example of this occurs in nature, in the process of an ugly, fat caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. Look at the image behind me. Those are very different. The before and after are significantly different. This is where we get our word metamorphosis from. This type of transformation is what happens in a believer's life. A metamorphosis that God begins and continues in us from the moment of our salvation when we are united with Christ and that which God will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is what God does and this is which we join in with him. And remember that from the very beginning, our man-made efforts to clothe ourselves in new garments, recall Adam and Eve with their handmade loincloths sewn from fig leaves from Genesis chapter 3, are completely inadequate. Because God did what they could not do. He replaced them with garments of skin and he clothed them. You see, from the very beginning of time, God has always been the only hope that we have of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. He's the only hope we have in dealing with our sin. He transforms us like a caterpillar whose only job is to crawl into the cocoon. We crawl into Christ. And God does what only he can do. He metamorphoses us into the beautiful creatures that we were designed to be, image bearers of God. This is highlighted in the last part of verse 10, where we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. This echoes back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
Again, like a caterpillar who crawls into the cocoon to become what the designer wants it to be, we humans crawl into the person and work of Christ by faith. We abide in him and we become all that God created us to be from the very beginning. And since Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, noted in Colossians 1.15, it makes complete sense that we are being renewed into his image as we are found in him and he in us and us in God. So in wrapping up our passage this morning, we need to look at verse 11. Verse 11 declares the impact of our union with Christ on our new identities. Verse 11 reads, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, sinking and slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Through our union with Christ, all man-made walls are broken down. Not only are these barriers and divisions shattered and destroyed, but there is also one new ultimate identity in Christ. Garland and Moo's comments are helpful here when they write, in Christ, people are not classified by race, tribe, nationality, or even class. Christ brings unity because he is the one who indwells all believers who make up the new humanity in the new kingdom. So Christ is all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is preeminent and he is in all. He is in every believer and every believer is in him. We are enveloped by Christ and by God. Just remember our visual because Christ is all and Christ is in all. As we come to a close, I would like for us to consider the author of the letter we are reading, Paul. How did Paul apply his own teaching to his own life? Because I think that everything he has communicated in our passage this morning so affected him that he was completely transformed by it. He considered himself dead in such a profound way that his body became a shell that Christ took up residency in. And I believe that he summarizes this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Northwake, would you adopt Paul's life verse as your own? Will you embrace crucifixion with Christ? Will you die to the things of this world and your old life? Will you allow Christ to take full control of you? Will it really be as though Christ is living in and through you? And as a result, just watch the sin begin to mortify and die and fall away. Let's pray. God, in a passage like this, we cannot help but see the utter dependence that we have upon Christ as our only hope to do this thing that we call put off and put on. 
We cannot be transformed apart from our abiding in you, being completely united to you. So Lord, any efforts that we put into this, which we will put effort into this to mortify and to kill all sin that resides inside of us, let us do that work in you as we are united to you as Christ is in us, as we are in Christ, and as we are in God. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.